We turn now to God's Word. It's found in the 14th chapter of Exodus. Listen again for God's Word. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to keep still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. But you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the Israelites may go into the sea on the dry ground. Then I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And so I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army, his chariots, and his chariot drivers. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his chariot drivers. Then the angel of God who was going before the Israelite army moved and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into a dry land and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that, what they, so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, Let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. The word of the Lord. At 11 a.m. local time, on the 11th day of the 11th month, churches around our country have been asked to toll their bells 21 times to commemorate Armistice today. Today is the 100th anniversary of the Armistice to cease hostilities on the Western Front of World War I. It took effect on the 11th hour of the 11th day 
of the 11th month in 1918. We will hear the bell tolled 21 times through the sermon in and around our 11 o'clock time. What do we make of war as we gather here on the 100th anniversary of the ceasing of hostilities in what was known then as the war to end all wars? Later it would become known as World War I because it turned out it was not the war to end all wars. It was a brutal, deadly war that introduced weapons like submarines, machine guns, poison gas, grenades, tanks, airplanes, and more, all of which are part of our arsenal, as is air power and strategic bombing. 116,516 Americans died in that war. Over 200,000 were wounded. And the total number of military and civilian casualties across the world are estimated from 15 to 19 million deaths and about 23 million wounded, depending on how you calculate death and casualties. It was a war that started with miscommunication, broken relationships, intrigue, assassination. And when the war ended, with the hope of nations joining together in a league to promote and live in peace, another war was already on the horizon. We may not have more wars now than we did then, but I guess we know more about wars than ever before as we feel closer to it with news and journalists embedded with armies. Tactics and weapons change, but we cannot move beyond wars. Sounds a bit like the Israelites in Exodus. Remember the irony of their situation. They're in Egypt in the first place because Joseph had saved them by bringing his family to Egypt to avoid starvation. But times and loyalties had shifted. And now we have Pharaoh and Moses, God's appointed leader, unable to communicate for a peaceable leaving. Plagues rained down on Egyptians, death visits. Israelites are allowed to leave but then find themselves in a race to escape, literally a race to save themselves. They're not going to make it. The powerful Egyptian army with its chariots, superior weapons, can win a war. They've chased them and caught them with the Red Sea holding them back and death coming from behind separated only by the presence of God. And then in this climactic scene, God parts the Red Sea, the Israelites cross over, 
then the walls of water act as allies for the Israelites and drown out the Egyptian army. The enemy is defeated. Israel is saved. Peace will reign. Or maybe not. The time in the wilderness and in the promised land will prove to be a time with war after war. You can track our history from then to now. And it's a history of war after war. The presence of war shapes our perception of God and of humanity. Some look at the world and see the ongoing presence of war, the violence and brutality, and say, those are signs there, there's no God, just a human race that only knows war and power. Others look at the war and see the sinfulness of humanity on full display, but also claim that the fact that, that in the midst of wars, people struggle for peace, people battle against oppression and injustice, that people continue to pray for peace to reign, that in those actions we see God. Through the years, Christians have developed criteria to evaluate war. You may know just war theory. What would make a war just for God's people? How should war be fought so that it is just? There's criteria to evaluate those questions. And, and in our day, new criteria being added. Can a place be rebuilt? Can structures be brought back to life after the war? If all the criteria are met, then it's what we might call a just war. I don't know about you, but I hear less discussion of just war criteria, more the resigned note that it's just another war. As if we're immune to war, or if war has become just a normal part of our lives. What does God think about war? Old Testament suggests God not only condones war, but sends Israel into war. We read a story where God, on behalf of saving the Israelites, destroys the Egyptian army. One of the challenges, one of the mysteries of interpreting the biblical text is how to handle all the wars in the Old Testament and God's role in them. What are we to make of God who saves Israel at the expense of their enemies. I'm reminded of a 1974 sermon preached by Rabbi Albert Lewis. It's, it's mentioned in Mitch Album's book, Have a Little Faith. Rabbi Lewis shares the Talmudic interpretation of the crossing of the Red Sea as it was described by those biblical scholars in years long gone. After seeing Pharaoh's army drowned in the Red Sea, the angels in heaven wanted to celebrate their death. But God grew angry with this and said, Those are my children too. Hard to know the mind of God. So perhaps we should look at the fullest expression of the God we have. That is the Son of God. 
When Jesus arrived on the scene, the great power in the world was the Roman Empire. We know Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, a two-century period when there was peace, or at least that was the story. Historians have a different view of Roman peace. The Romans had mastered the art of talking about peace while raging almost constant war, always, of course, in the name of peace. They littered the landscape with temples to peace and inscriptions about peace. At the same moment, their regiments were crushing rebellions and slashing their way to more and more conquests. Brutal peace as exemplified by the practice of crucifixion. But Jesus comes along. A countercultural message of loving in a world of brutal and violent peace. A countercultural message of peace that is punctuated by Christ's death on the cross. Paul's letter to the Romans reveals the counterculture nature of Jesus' followers. No surprise since Jesus himself offers a countercultural move when instead of raising an army to take on the Roman authorities of state and the religious authorities, he submits even to his death. In light of Jesus' action, Paul can exhort the Romans, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. Let God take care of vengeance. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are still a world that knows war. We are still a people who teach the ways Christ. We are a people who struggle to know. When do we lift arms to protect? When do we pray and act in ways of peace? How do they go together? We are a people who stand with those we baptize. Walter's the one today, but there are many before. There'll be those that come after. We commit to teaching the ways of Christ. As we teach him and others, we surely have to acknowledge that war is still here. War is still going strong. But we'll also teach him about following Christ, the one we call the Prince of Peace, and teach him to look toward a day when God's love will overcome all things, even war. I finish with a poem written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Christmas Bells. It was written on Christmas Day, 1863, two years after the tragic death of his wife in the midst of the Civil War where his son, against his father's wishes, went and served in battle. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, a wild and sweet 
the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth the cannon thundered in the south and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if, it was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a con continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. <laughs>